Now entering Nerdist.com. Greetings, Adventure Coteers. It's me, Work Juice Player Hal Lublin. You may have heard rumors of the thrilling Adventure Hours doing a holiday show at the Theater at the Ace Hotel in L.A. on December 17th. Those rumors are true. And what you may not have heard is that that December 17th show is our final show before going on an indefinite hiatus. Yep, that December 17th show at the Ace will be the last new Beyond Belief, the last new Sparks Nevada, the last of everything for a very long time. Now look, we all love doing the show, but the cast and everyone else has got deservedly busy over the past couple years. And while Acker and Blacker have enjoyed stretching the boundaries of what a thrilling adventure hour can be since ending the monthly show in 2015, it's time for a good long break. So please, join us on December 17th at the Theater at the Ace Hotel for a farewell appearance. The Ace is a beautiful, big theater, and we want to fill it with enthusiastic adventure coteers, the fans who mean so much to us. You can find the link for tickets on all of our social media, that's at ThrillingADV on Twitter, on Facebook, and at workjuice.tumblr.com, or by searching the Ace Hotel calendar. And now, please enjoy this all-new episode. Clink! Pow! TV is my friend, and it has been with me every day from an early age. TV is my friend, and it has been always there for me in time with me. so much for being here on a Sunday night. Uh, hi, my name is Ben Blacker. Uh, I created and host this Nerdist Writers Panel, which is now just called the Writers Panel. We started this, I, I wrote this down because I did not realize it's gone so quickly. The first panel we did was March 2011. Yeah, that's a long time ago. <laughs> I was a young man. You're going to notice that there are, I think, 15 or 16 panelists. I had a number of them drop out in the past week, as happens. It's why I booked 21 of them. Um, but uh, you're also going to notice that of these panelists, they're primarily white and male. This is also the world we live in. Um, and this is, you know, like we, we do sometimes make light of this, but in, it is an ongoing issue in the industry. What I was looking for on this panel is not just uh, people I respect and admire, but the people who made the television that was important over the past 10, 15 years. And those have primarily been white male writers. So you know what that means, female writers and people of color. It's time. Get out there. Make the TV that is important for the next 10, 15 years. And I think it's already happening. There's so much great TV now. There are more outlets than there ever were. In, when we started this in 2011, there was no Hulu. There was no original programming on Netflix. But anyway, so there are more outlets than there ever were. If you are female and or a person of color, tell the stories that haven't been told because all these guys have told their stories. We got to see it. Lost is a white man's game. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Um, all right. I want to start. Um, so anyway, thank you guys for listening to that little rant. Thank you. If there were sidekicks to this podcast, they would be my first two guests. <laughs> 
They are the most demanded guests. Uh, every time I say, who should I have on the podcast? Though I have had them on many times. People keep asking from the back, and I am always happy to talk to them. Please give a round of applause to Jeff Greenstein and Josh Friedman. I'm the Jewish one, in case you... <laughs> a lot of white men, a lot of Jews tonight. You guys, thank you for being here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having us. Um, that's what sidekicks do. We show up. That's right. We're always we just, there. We just show up for you. Is this good? Can we you don't need any credit or... <laughs> You're good. You're not getting it. Um, you guys, I think the most important thing that we want to ask both of you is what have you learned from being on my podcast? <laughs> Well, I, I met this guy who I love. I've actually... Does, does this count? So yeah. I can tell you. Like, you, can, you can answer in earnest my joke question. I made a lot of deep and lifelong friends on your podcast. That's really... That's true. what I've learned. I've learned how to share. Was <laughs> this a problem before? No. A problem. I have no problem making friends, but I've made more of them and better ones on this show. That's very nice. I feel the same way. Honestly, in over these five years, it's been a pleasure to get to know new people and, and form yeah. friendships. Um, now, you guys, I have always wanted to introduce people in sort of like this British chat show style, so I'm going to do that right now. Um, Josh, I just got finished reading a script that you wrote, which is uh, delightful from top to bottom. You are a writer who is startlingly original, specific. Your scripts are beautifully written. I cannot. I read them as if I'm watching a great television show and cannot wait for the next episode. Just go with it. I am. Go with it. And Jeff, you are terribly tall. There you go. I'm everything Josh is not. <laughs> so I genuinely do. I, I actually did, and I emailed Josh about this, but I got finished reading one of your scripts, and I absolutely loved it. And I really want to ask you, how do you write like you? Like, your scripts are so beautifully written and so specific, and the story... What is your... We've, we've talked about process in the past, but have I ever you keep getting better. Answer? I don't know that you have. Can I, can I have the friend question? <laughs> a lifeline? Yeah. No, I'm... How do I write like me? What does your process look like? How do you start to dig into these scripts to give them the depth, the weight, and, and the beauty that they have? Because you don't think of a script as a beautiful thing, but yours are. Okay. Uh, thank you. I've never been on a British chat show. It's going Now I know why they all look so uncomfortable. <laughs> I was so prepared to come up. I had a whole yeah. shtick prepared, because you told me to just prepare a shtick. <laughs> I know. You didn't say you were going to ask me a question <laughs> like that. Uh, I mean, I don't know that I have an answer. I mean, basically, I um, procrastinate like a motherfucker. I build up, like, a huge ball of self-loathing until it just, like, feels like it's going to choke me. Uh, I eat, like, a two-pound bag of M&Ms and then, like, kind of coked up on, on, like, the caffeine from the chocolate and, and like, having sort of an anaphylaxis from the peanut. I... You know, I, I mean, I pretend like I'm playing piano. Like I, and I don't know how to play piano, so it just, I... That, is, that's probably is, not a satisfying answer, but... It uh, is in many ways, because it reflects my, the, re the way the rest of us write. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it'd be cheap to say I start from character. I mean, I, I tend to have, uh, like, four or five big images in my head or things that I want to do. I mean, the script you read... Um, 
there's, I, I mean, we can talk in code. I don't know <laughs> about it. But there's like a sequence in like three three quarters of the way through the thing that's like the big crazy sequence in there that I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to do this in this script. And then I kind of went backwards in some ways. I kind of write. I'm mean, alright from beginning to end, but I I don't conceive of it from beginning to end. I think, and I and I think at the end of the day, it's just a character thing. I don't, I can't see any of you, so I can't tell how many of you are like people who want to be screenwriters or TV writers. <coughs> By a round of applause, do round most of, applause. of you want to write professionally? I think that's why they're here. Okay, well I'm not going to tell any of you how, uh, <laughs> because then you'll take my job. That's fair, um, Jeff. Are you writing these days, or are you just directing? I'm serious. Because um, you've had you've had pilots in the works that sort of like never go away, which is kind yes, of amazing that is true. because people are dying to work with you. I have a new thing I'm incubating. I had a very productive first half of the year where I was writing in a feverish. I had a series order and uh, I was writing feverishly. Can you talk about that? I don't think I can. Okay. I'll just tell you that uh, that a project that I was extremely passionate about was cruelly cut down before I could make it. I'm sorry. Um, so I was more productive in the first three months of this year than I've been in a long, long time. I wrote basically six scripts for a half-hour comedy that I was slated to write and direct, and uh, it was incredible. Incredible. It was. I was in. You know, if you've ever heard me on this podcast, I talk a lot about crying. Yes. Uh, and, uh, the audience loves I it. I talk a lot about self-loathing, and I talk a lot about hating what I do and never trusting what I do. And uh, you know that line in uh, "Say Anything," where John Cusack said, "Girl, got me trusting myself." <laughs> That's what this series had That's me doing. That's great. And what did I get for it? I got pain. <laughs> it, it gave me a pen. That's exactly what happened. You wrote a series and it gave yeah, me a Yeah, I wrote pen. a series. So, listen, I have six nice scripts in hand, and I'm hoping to resuscitate this in some way, because as you said, my things never die. Yeah. Um, but I was doing a lot of writing in the first half of the year, and uh, to be honest, uh, I've been in mourning for a few months about that. Uh, and when I am in mourning, directing is a suitable salve pain. Okay. So I've directed a few episodes of The Odd Couple, which I really enjoy. And uh, maybe doing some more of that after the first of the year. That's great. So we'll, uh, well let me ask you two questions. Um, one is this project that you were working on that really that helped you trust yourself. Yeah. Do you, can you build off of that? Can you use that momentum and trust yourself again on another project? No. I mean... <sighs> Listen, what I hope that this says to you people out there who want to do this is it's, it never gets easier. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I never get to the point where I feel like I got this wired and I know exactly how to do it because anytime I do, I quit that job. Um, anytime I, like, I felt like after my tenure on, on Friends and on Will and & Grace, I felt like I have done multi-camera half-hour comedy, so please give me a job that's much harder that I don't know how to do. Um, and when after Desperate Housewives, I felt I had done sort of a hybrid comedy drama, and I wanted to do a pure drama. So I'm constantly kind of trip, trying to trip myself up. Um, it's pathological. Um, and so in this particular case, it's like it, feel, it felt really good to have that experience of feeling really deeply connected to the material. And uh, if anything, it spoiled me. You know, like I don't want to do something where I'm just like doing a job, or I'm just like. 
you know, a, a hired gun of some sort. I want to, I want to feel that good about the work I do. That, so, did I answer your question? Yeah, well, made, that, it, made it harder. That has to, <laughs> it, it did make it harder, but that also has to be a good feeling that you know the thing you're going to do is something that you really want to do. Yeah, I mean, it was a very good feeling during this process. Uh, uh, it was a, it was a very good feeling during this process to be writing at a level that was really satisfying to me, where I felt like I'm really working at the top of my game, and that that was a really good feeling. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I, I think that the, what Jeff is trying to say. Yes, yeah. that's what I have, Josh. No. Here. <laughs> Most of the time, it's going to end in tragedy, so don't be a whore. Your time is valuable. Well done. Yeah. Your time, your time on Earth is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. You only have so many scripts to write. Most of the time, whether you write them poorly or well, they're not going to go anywhere. So you might as well go to bed at night thinking, I fucking killed it. Yeah. And you're not going to think that anyway, but you might as well try. Yeah. I, that's completely true. I would rather have, I mean, this was a very, very difficult experience, like I said. Um, but I would rather have had those three months of writing at that incredibly high level than phoning it in and doing mediocre work. Um, which is why I'm sitting here rather than like doing some late night rewrite on some hit TV show. Right? Do you guys have any, I mean, this is great advice. Do you have any specific to television writing advice, uh, something on the page, something you have seen new writers, mistakes new writers have made or things you've seen new writers do that you think is really exciting and smart? Well, I can say kind of like, what do I respond to when I read scripts, yeah. whether they're new or old, or any people, if I'm looking to hire them, or, uh, I mean, I, I think that, again, it kind of goes back to this thing. I mean, if you write a script, you're going to spend the time doing it. Try to write something that expresses some part of you. Like, I don't, I'm not a write-what-you-know kind of person, but I am a write-what-you-feel mm-hmm. kind of person, and I think that no matter what genre you're in, no matter what you're working, whether it's half hour, whether it's hour. I mean, I write a lot of like, I mean, what people, I guess, think of as like big sci-fi stuff, or they think of me as a genre person. I think of me as a 14-year-old girl. Like, I, I, I try to figure out how to make myself cry while I'm sitting at the keyboard or just, or imagining somebody else doing that. I mean, I think that I feel driven to try to find emotion in the stuff that I do, and so when I read things, um, I want to be moved. And if I, if, I, if I read stuff and it just feels like someone is just kind of doing the version of it that they think is going to get them hired or they think is going to get them an agent or whatever I just think why the why do I need another why do we need another one of you mm-hmm. you know yeah. we need another one of you you know and and I and to the degree that you can find that as a writer and that's not easy um, you're going to be better for it the degree that which you can't you should go find another job mm. yeah do that and never, ever use voiceover. <laughs> ever. <laughs> Jeff Greenstein and Josh Friedman, everyone. <laughs> now, we've, I've stumbled over the years. You guys were on in the first season of the show, yeah. which is the first year of the podcast. And I stumbled on these pairings of people which you would never expect. You would never necessarily put them together. But when I'm booking the live panels, it's who can I get? Um, and we were very lucky to have these two people, next two people, wind up on a panel together because they have an amazing chemistry. Uh, please welcome Michael Shore and Carlton Cuse. Good, more wow, shtick. That was good. 
These are the tallest fucking writers I've ever been. <laughs> Um, Not sitting down. <laughs> feels that way. <laughs> Guys, would you uh, just for the podcast listeners who may not be aware, just tell us some of the shows that you are behind and what you are currently doing, just very briefly. Uh, I'm currently working on uh, The Good Place on NBC. <laughs> and uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine and Master of None and uh, Parks and Recreation are the other. I am uh, doing Bates Motel for A&E. The Strain on FX. Uh, Colony on USA. And uh, the upcoming Jack Ryan for Amazon. Um, Formerly Lost. Did you personally approve the billboards for The Strain? I did not. It was. It was. It was I uh, literally had to explain <laughs> the concept of nightmares to my seven-year-old son in anticipation of what I knew was going to happen after he saw a billboard for your show. And and by the way, was not wrong. He like. And now that I think of it, he may have had the nightmare because I talked to him. <laughs> They had put the billboard up in front of 20th Century Fox, and you know I was not immune to how cool that was. It was like, and people would send me some texts and said, like, your billboard's right in front of Fox. And so my wife was like, well, you should go over and take a picture of yourself in front of the billboard. <laughs> Wait, like, which one was it though? There was the one with the eyeball. Yeah, yeah, out. yeah. So the worm in the eyeball. I, one. I literally day two, I go over there and it's gone. And, yeah, and. Uh, and apparently the Cheviot Hills Homeowners Association. <laughs> not like it. You're probably president of the Cheviot Hills Homeowners Association. I am not the president. <laughs> What's amazing is they left that one with the following where that naked woman stabs herself up there for like a year and a half. Yeah. I didn't see it's, that one. It's, it's, oh. it's, it's eyeballs. It's, it's, it's eyeballs. It's, yeah. Eyes are very tender spots. It's like a worm going into no, but you know it was effective. Uh, people remember maybe. it. Effect, yeah, people remember it. <laughs> Mike and Carlton, uh, I mentioned to you guys that I think there's a conversation to be had about what is going on in The Good Place and the sort of shows that you have made, Carlton, from Lost uh, to Colony, which I feel like uh, is driven by a specific philosophy or, or exploring ideas. Bates Motel is the same way, and some of the stuff you've developed as well. Um, I don't know what that conversation is, and I don't think we can have it in six minutes. But <laughs> would you guys care to talk about creating shows that do grapple with these sort of big ideas while still having characters that we really love? Yeah, so what was the, what was the inception of the idea for Good Place? Uh, the, uh, the actual inception of it was me driving around this godforsaken city that we live in and <laughs> observing behavior that I consider to be, in small ways, like sort of morally reprehensible <laughs> from like cutting people cutting you off in traffic or like pulling into the breakdown lane when there's a lot of traffic to like 
people screaming at waiters in restaurants when it's very clearly the problem is not the waiter. Like, the waiter didn't do anything. There's, like, this sort of weird sense of, like, L.A. entitlement. Uh, and just beginning to, like, formulate a system in my head of, like, well, that's negative six points. Like, if, like if, someone, if someone, if anyone is watching and they're keeping a score, that's negative six points. And I sort of built, like, the, the idea, and then it slowly... Uh, is that slowly turned into the show, but it was also like turning inward and and realizing that like my I try to I'm a rule follower I try to follow rules all the time, but I also do things that are in similar tiny ways morally reprehensible. For example, I realize about myself I wanted I go to the same Starbucks every day and I get a cup of coffee and it's like a dollar seventy and I uh, put the thirty cents into the tip jar and I realize about myself at some point while I started to think of the show that I. <laughs> I waited until the barista turned around. <laughs> yeah, and it's thirty cents. It's, it's like it's technically what is that? It's almost a twenty percent tip, but it's thirty cents. And I realized that I was like I was doing that because I want the credit. Like you want to be thought of as like the good person who like yeah. So of course I'll tip you. I'm a generous soul. So. The dollar is a lot quieter. Yeah, and that's why I don't do the yeah. <laughs> So uh, so anyway that that was those were the that was yeah. the genesis of it, but then the problem became when it was like, okay, now I got to turn. I, I came up with the idea for the show, and man, oh man, it's hard to. The world building's a bitch. It's isn't really it? hard. Yeah, it's and, really a bitch. And and you end up with uh, with pilot episodes, and then like several episodes where it, it feels like, man, you're just explaining to people. You guys, the, the Lost version is probably maybe better because on Lost, like 37 minutes in that pilot, it's like, what's that? Fucking polar bear? Great. <laughs> Are you guys going to explain that? No. Polar bear. And then, oh, look, there's in the tree line, there's a monster ripping down trees. Are we going to get that explanation, Carlton? No, you're not. <laughs> and in the, in the comedy version of that, you, it, comedy requires people to like understand what's happening and they need to, people need to know rules and so I had there were like Ted Danson had some long ass speeches of just like here's how it works like just just bulldozing through the premise and it was really hard yeah well so like on Colony we did none of that as well it was yeah see that's yeah. the thing for the record in drama you can be all like mysterious and vague and like mad many about like what's happening no one knows it's weird it's fine <laughs> You can't do that in comedy because people are waiting to understand the rules of the universe. Right. So, so in Colony, we have these 300-foot walls that are occupy the space that the freeways used to occupy. So I myself have also been influenced by my time driving. <laughs> How are you not? Um, exactly. But, but there's a difference between setting the rules of the universe, of the show, and exploring morality, exploring a philosophy without stopping oh, to totally say... totally not answer your question at all? No, no, no. No, 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 no. That was all great stuff. But... So we're just down to two minutes, though. So that's... But what's interesting to me and what I think The Good Place does, which I think Colony does, uh, which I think Bates does, which other dramas that are interested in exploring ideas do not, is they don't sit down and say, we're exploring this idea. They let the audience do it with the characters. And I think that's, that's really smart, and it's not taking the character, taking the audience for, for dummies. You should talk. It's not a question. <laughs> it's not a question. 
question, just a statement, but um, I'm curious well, about you know, exploring I mean, ideas you know, in think, fiction. I think I always try to kind of find, figure out what's the operative idea of the show. So in, in Colony, Ryan Condal and I were like, wouldn't it be cool to do an alien invasion show in which there were no aliens? Um, and in the course of the first season of Colony, <laughs> spoiler if you haven't seen it, you see one alien one time and it's dead. So, um, you know, what we really were interested in is this, uh, this propensity that, you know, people have when given the opportunity to happily subjugate one another. And it became this metaphor for occupation and colonialization and we looked at all these pictures of like uh, Paris during World War II. This is a lot different than comedy. See, this is, this is like a very different vibe when you're looking at pictures of Nazis in the streets of Paris. And uh, we were like, well, what, how can we do a modern analog of that? And science fiction became the answer. And so that was how we, you know, we came up with the idea of doing this in L.A. And L.A. has been invaded, but they've installed this proxy human government. And we, you know, we don't really know what's going on. But it's interesting when you talk about the explaining part of it, because I think, you know, I had just done a, Ryan and I had previously done a pilot and it got really didactic. We were, you know, between a combination of network notes and maybe um, the wrong decision to listen to a lot of the network notes, the script became, you know, a lot of explanation. So with Colony, we're like, we're not going to explain a fucking thing. We're just going to put people in the world and then start the show. And, you know, all those mysteries will be exciting for the audience. I also I did I did this thing where I, when I was pitching the show I said that the the part of the show was going to be like this woman who uh, the premise of the show is she was kind of a, a junkie person and she shows up she's been mistaken for someone else and ends up in basically heaven and that she was going to have to try to learn how to be a good person before they caught her so that she could sort of earn her place and I. I said that the show was going to deal with a lot of like m morality and philosophy and stuff, and uh, and uh, you know you get weird looks from people sometimes when you say things like that in a network TV pitch. Um, and but but I said, listen, I promise, I promise, I won't make it feel like homework. It was actually verbatim, legally, what I said. Uh, and then like in the third episode, she's like, Kristen Bell's literally sitting, and there's a guy at a chalkboard like. Ethics 101 on the chalkboard, and uh, they haven't uh, shut it down, so I guess I got away with it. But, it, but the, at a certain point, in a weird way, it became better and funnier, I think, to actually just say, like, just run right at it and say, like, no, we're actually, th this is what we're doing now. We're going to, like, explore in a very surface sort of cocktail party level way, because that is the depth of my knowledge of these subjects. <laughs> to just explore like and, and instead of like trying to fake people out or something it seemed like it was going to be funnier and, and better a structure to just run right at it so that's what we ended up doing yeah. uh, the other thing I love about uh, both, both all, kind of all the shows that you both have been involved with is the way that you chew through plot without it feeling like you're chewing through plot you know it never feels like a soap opera but it feels like there's movement in every episode how do you start? How do you start to put that together? In whether it's ten episodes or whether it's four seasons. Yeah, I want to know this too. <laughs> <laughs> in two minutes, uh, like, like, take five because it's, it's on the important. shows. On the shows that you're working on now, did you yeah. come into? Are you in a room yet? On uh, on uh, what's it's not called? Jason Bourne. What's it called? Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. <laughs> 
I know it's confusing. You've got Jason Bourne, and then you've got Jack Reacher, and exactly. now Jack Ryan. So Jack Ryan is going to be ten of us for Amazon. John Krasinski is going to play uh, Jack Ryan, um, and uh, we have a room, and uh, we have a lot of really bright people in this room who have a lot of really interesting different backgrounds, and uh, so we have a we have a, a Muslim Pakistani female writer who uh, we're doing an ISIS type story and she's amazing. We have a woman who was a Pulitzer finalist for writing about the military industrial complex. We have um, a guy who worked for the CIA um, until recently who looks like a he looks, he's awesome. I mean he, he looks like a Portland hipster. He looks like he should be like <laughs> making like micro beer but was actually like a very cool badass CIA guy um, and uh, you know so we you know you kind of you, you sit around and you talk about you just you know you talk endlessly about things and I think the more you talk about them the more you kind of figure out ways of embedding you know narrative is very important I think particularly in a show like Jack Ryan which is you know very high octane techno thriller but you try to find ways to you know have it be revealed through character and try to not make it sound expositional and it's you know I don't I don't know how quite to succinctly you know say that what the rules are of how you accomplish that but sure. just you work on it did you come in uh, at the beginning of the season with sort of like Josh was talking about for his pilot script did you have an exciting thing that you wanted to hit did you have exciting sequences that you knew you wanted to be in the series somewhere oh yeah totally I mean basically when when uh, Graham Roland and I pitched it we had sort of like four big ideas that were the kind of the key things that are sort of the major plot twists across the course of the season. And so a lot of it is really, um, you know, when Dan and I were doing Lost together, we always talked about it as kind of the metaphor was it was a road trip. You know, you, we knew we were going to go to these cities. We we're going to go to Denver and Kansas City, Chicago and New York. And then we would sort of, you know, some days we would take the interstate. Other days we would take the meandering back roads. Uh, a lot of times we take the meandering back roads. Uh, and, uh, you know, but you kind of know where you're going to get, and so you're kind of, you know, you're sort of working towards those events. So those things become kind of the architecture, certainly in a drama show, for, you know, how you construct a season. Did you guys ever find that polar bear in any of those cities? <laughs> no, the polar bear. We don't know what happened to the polar bear. It's not going to come up on check, right? No. Uh, Mike, when you came to the Good Place room, did you, did you start this season with... A plan? Like, what, what did you know going in? I knew the whole season by the time. Yeah, I, I, uh, I wanted Ted Danson to play the lead role, and I felt like if I were Ted Danson, I, at this point in my career, would have uh, the right <laughs> to know the whole story uh, before I signed on to something. So I, I had... The, I Actually, I, the, the first person, really, that I pitched the show to was Damon. Lindelof, uh, and I, I didn't know him. Did that you have well. it all figured out by yourself? Did you just? I had, I had it. I had that version all figured out. Yeah, and beginning, middle, and end. And then I, I, um, I realized I didn't really know anything about the genre I was about to start writing in. So I knew Damon a little bit, and I took him out to lunch, and I said, "We're going to play a game, and the game is called Is This Anything." <laughs> This game is I pitch you an entire season of television <laughs> over one lunch, and you tell me if it's anything. And I, I'm dying to hear what the other side of the conversation sounded like. Hold on. Yeah. David Lindelof, everybody. <laughs> okay. 
that, was that like the greatest segue in the <laughs> Legitimately didn't know he was supposed to come out. Next. Thank you so much. I was just watching and enjoying the <laughs> uh, So, so Damon, faced with this conversation, I'm re- I genuinely am curious to hear what you are thinking as Mike is pitching you what is or is not a season of television. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I, like you and I had had like a, a breakfast at Jinkies sort of right. prior to that, and we we hit it off, and it's it's very. Um, uh, it's very strange and wonderful what we do for a living sometimes because the fact of the matter is, and I'm not just saying this, I think everybody up on the stage and everybody about to come out on the stage probably feels the same way, which is we would be sitting in the audience if we were not in, invited to be here tonight. So I continue to be a fan of, of television, you know, even though I also get to do this job. And so I'm a huge, massive fan of, uh, of the UK office and then the American version the American version was launching sort of around the same time that that Lost was, and there was this weird sort of award season uh, uh, as both shows were kind of peaking uh, in their early existence, where we were running to each other at all these award shows, and Mindy Kaling actually suggested we have like some kind of like Lost uh, office, like you know, drunken, you know, like love fest. Which, that was awesome. Which resulted in a Lost writer and an Office writer getting married. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Carl. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, and anyway, so I was a huge fan uh, of The Office, and then Parks and Rec was a massive fan. And then uh, and then uh, I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine was in its first season when we finally met down, and so we finally sat down. And so there was this sort of, uh, I've got to play it cool. I don't want to come on too strong. I, I want to order, like, more food. But he's gonna think I'm a pig. You know, is it, you know uh, there's like a very uh, vast and impressive menu at Jinkies. And, um, I, like, should I get the frosted flakes on the pancake? It was like a date. And anyway, so I was sort of unpacking, did that go well? Like, uh, and all these things. And then uh, uh, we would exchange emails on occasion. And then Mike reached out and said, can I take you out to lunch? And we went out to lunch. And, you know, and I'm not just saying this because he's sitting here on the stage, but I think that when any uh, colleague who you hold in high esteem says that they want your feedback on something that they're obviously passionate about, you operate from a place of, well, I have to love this. I'm going to say that I love it no matter what happens. But, you know, it, this is not like a, a super close colleague of mine. And then as he began to pitch, I just felt a tremendous amount of relief because I was like, oh, this is fucking great. <laughs> and then I started to lean forward and get really engaged in the show. Mike told me things about the show that have not yet been revealed uh, on the show because, as he says, uh, he, had, he had already thought out the kind of uh, uber uh, structure of it. So... Uh, my memory of the lunch is that he talked for about half an hour and then said, so is it anything? And then I said, yes. <laughs> and then we had a coffee and uh, he gave me 30 cents and I left. It was a great first date. It was a hot. 
and it, the, but the second date, uh, uh, Damon is selling himself short because he gave me very specific advice, which I will not repeat, about the idea and about potential pitfalls and about potential solutions to those pitfalls and was extremely helpful and, in fact, recommended that Drew Goddard be the guy who directs it, which is what ended up happening. And, and Drew Goddard was the lost writer who married, married Caroline Williams. Williams. <laughs> Office writer. That I'm I don't know this for sure, but I would bet without any information that that entire office lost party was just Mindy trying to have sex with Josh Holloway. <laughs> I have no evidence. Well, let, let's find Ex- out. Except no, I have no evidence except that I worked with Mindy for five years. That's which is sort of I just remember at that party though, it was like sort of congratulate the, a cake came out and it was sort of like congratulations Greg and JJ. And JJ was not there. It was like, should we blow out the candles? Which became kind of the functioning metaphor of the next two years on I'm curious to hear, I mean, the reasons you would go to Damon to talk about story like this uh, seem obvious to us, but Damon, I'm going to ask you to get a little uh, self-reflexive and and dig deep and get self-aware. What makes your brain work this way? How does your brain work, uh, and how do you get those puzzle stories onto the page? You know, it's a work in progress. I mean, I I think that I'm obviously fascinated by mystery and to to a, a somewhat more frustrating effect, ambiguity. I think for me, my dad was a huge uh, film buff, and when I was growing up, he showed me a lot of um, uh, like uh, European cinema uh, 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 movies that had like a high degree of interpretation. I'd be like, "Is this right? Is this, am I reading this right?" And he'd be like, "I don't know." <laughs> and so th- those things kind of uh, the I don't know factor sort of lives on. And I think that the stories that I'm completely and totally engrossed by are stories that I sort of innately feel may never give me the answer that I want. And I think it's some, somewhat of a cop-out, one that we used very often, which is it's, it's about the journey, man. Yeah. Like, it's not about the answer, but in, to, uh, for me, it, it's, it's really... Um, it's really about the possibility that you may never get an answer at all. So something like Serial uh, comes along, and you go, like the reason that I got really into it is I'm going to get really engaged in the story, but I'm never going to know whether Adnan did it or not. And I'm just probably never going to know. Like we're going to all move through our lives, and maybe he'll get out of jail, and maybe he won't. And now I've heard all different sides of this, and I know, you know, and, and I felt uh, 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 this immense sort of like connection to Sarah Koenig's relationship with Adnan, and now I'm. I suddenly I care about Hayes family and so that idea of like whether or not he did it becomes secondary but the but the initial thing that got me in was that and so I think phase one, phase one is that once you actually answer these mysteries, once you actually kind of get down to it, um, to some degree, the audience may say like, oh, okay, I already knew that. I saw that coming. We can theorize about all these things. But there's also this sort of sense of disappointment, which is like, well, now that mystery is over. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of pressure there. But And I, I think that the more interesting mystery and, and the kind of puzzle storytelling that I'm drawn to, j- just to answer your question is that 
I worked in a movie theater um, in Paramus, New Jersey, from the age of 14 to 18, and it was a 10-plex. So at any given time, if it was like a really popular movie, it would be on two screens, but there were 10 movies playing at any one time. And over the course of those four years, which were not like a great four years in cinema, it was like 87 to 91. So, but I saw every single movie that came out, but we had 20-minute breaks as ushers, and so I watched every single movie in 20-minute installments, out of order. Um, And even shitty movies are awesome when you watch them out of order, because you go in and and you just watch 20 minutes of the movie, and you're like, why is that dude punch that dude, and why is she so sad? And then you go and watch the 20 minutes that preceded it, and you're like, oh, that's why. And so my brain started feeling like that would be a really interesting way to tell stories, as long as it wasn't a gimmick, as long as there was some reason for it. And then I moved out to L.A. in 94, and the first movie that I saw in L.A., it was packed, and I remember it was so crowded, I, uh, they said it was sold out, and I had to sit in the aisle, and it was Pulp Fiction, because I was already a huge... And that was the first movie that I saw that did that thing, where it was told out of order for a reason. So basically, uh, spoiler alert, but... <laughs> get to the middle of Pulp Fiction and uh, and Bruce Willis shoots John Travolta, who's taking a shit in his house. He shoots him uh, with a shotgun, and so now John Travolta is dead. And then, but the final, the third, the traditional third act of the movie, the final sequence, the big culminating moment is the scene between Travolta and Sam Jackson after uh, the beginning of the movie where both of them have been shot at at point blank range and they survive, and Sam Jackson's explaining Travolta he's going to now retire. He's not going to be a hitman anymore because there was divine intervention. And John Travolta is basically like, fuck that. You know, that's stupid. And it has power because you know that John Travolta is going to get shot <laughs> taking a shit by Bruce Willis, which is like, that's the way I want to die, by the way. But, and suddenly you're like, oh, they, they didn't just do this out of order because it would be cool. There was actually a, a purpose to it. There's a, des- there's a design to it all. And so the way, and or- the way that you tell the story and the order in which you tell the story became really, really interesting to me. And that's a bit of a puzzle box. And now I think it is still something, the audience has become so sophisticated that Reddit is basically like, that's their default position, which is like, come on, Westworld. Like, you know, like, when are you going to fucking tell us? Like, we, you know, they watch the show because they're entirely sophisticated enough to know that that's now, um, that's now in, our, in our box of tricks. I, I got to say, man, I kind of wish that you had seen Pulp Fiction in New Jersey in random 20-minute interviews. In order. And and had thought that it was a straightforward narrative. Like, if you had seen the right accidental 20-minute chunks, your whole brain might have been like, and you would be writing, like, Arthur Miller plays. one more uh, thing for Damon and Carlton both of you and this is something something I struggle with as a writer myself I am attracted to ambiguity both in the things I watch and the things I write were you two able to help each other to sort of fit that those am, ambiguous ambitions into the box of television storytelling, or did you enable each other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, softball. Like, can we do? Can we do this? And be like, sure, why not? Let's fucking do this. Like, you know. But but La 
us? I mean, I will say, uh, but, like, but, so much know, of it I mean, felt like... Look, I also, you know, I grew up watching a lot of European films as well, and when I was in college, there were a bunch of art house theaters around, and I would go see uh, Antonioni movies and Fellini movies and all these things, and they were so intriguing by virtue of being baffling, and I think, I think we did, um, we kind of enabled each other. I think that, you know, sort of fundamentally our rule was, like, if we both thought it was cool, we'd go on the show, and, and um, even if a lot of the things we thought were cool violated the traditional tenets of network television, particularly, remember, it was 2004, right? So, like, having a, like, 16 series regulars, having things that were ambiguous, having polar bears, uh, no polar bears, sci- doing science fiction, doing hi- heavily serialized storytelling, having main characters who did horrible things like murder each other, these were things that you didn't do, but it was by, it was the fact that we sort of convinced each other that we should do them, that, that you know, these were the very things that actually made the show different and engaging and made people want to watch but, it. Can I, can yeah. I, because, I mean, but isn't, I mean, for me, because I was experiencing loss kind of as a fan, as a writer, and being incredibly jealous that why do we get to do that? Hmm. You know, but what I always come back to, and we were talking about this a little bit before, is the characters, right? I mean, you guys could be as ambiguous as you wanted with the plot and with the puzzles, but everyone knew not necessarily how to feel, but they felt something. You know, I mean, there was there were characters in there that you passionately followed, and you were you were willing to go places with them. And I think the way that Lost ruined television uh, in a great way. was that a lot of less talented people came along after you guys and tried to make puzzle shows without characters that anyone gave a shit about. So you ended up with these big, bloated, puzzle, first acts to busted features that people turned into television shows for about five years or longer, you know, after that, and they'd everyone, oh, they don't work, and serialized television doesn't work, and ambiguity doesn't work. Well, how did it work on Lost? Well, talented motherfuckers, great actors, and there was actual kind of love on the show, like real and, you know, passion that didn't exist for all the people who came afterwards, you know, and, and it's it, it's a huge thing, you know. Well, I mean, thanks for saying that. I mean, I think probably in the writer's room, if you broke it down, I mean, we did probably spend about, I would say 75 or 80, we probably spent 80% of the time in the room talking about characters and about 15% of the time talking about mythology and 5% of the time talking about Top Chef. And that was, <laughs> that was the actual cocktail of Lost. <laughs> No, and you know, and I'll say that there was we we were self-aware enough to also understand that there there was something required from the characters of Lost, lest the show tip into that area that you're talking about, Josh, where other shows couldn't resist. Whereas, like the real cheat of the show from the word go, and this was kind of frustrating to the audience, but and, and frustrating to us as writers, but we knew it would be was that the characters couldn't give a shit about the mysteries, like with really with the exception of Lost. For like two seasons, <laughs> Sawyer's just like, I just killed a bear. <laughs> there are no subsequent conversations about it. You had to have the character dynamics like involving enough. Eventually, you're moving towards a point where all the characters are, you know, here you are finally with Ben Linus, the leader of the others, and you've got him locked in a room, and you want to just go in there and be like, all right, let's fucking talk the island. <laughs> and that, and then you don't write that scene because you know that writing it is huge. And so David, David Goyer created the show called Flash Forward around the area that 
um, we were doing season three or season four of Lost, and um, and ABC was like pushing it really hard, and I think they la- they actually launched it right after us or in the hiatus between us, and uh, and and um, and uh, I really liked the pilot, but I but I said to David, I said I think one of the problems you're going to have is the lead of this show is the FBI re- agent responsible for solving the flash forward, so the show is going to have to have you know, an engine of mystery solving versus just have it be about all these other characters who are affected by the flash forward but are not tasked with solving it. You know, this was the Twin Peaks problem. And by the way, we're not, you know, I'm not sitting here right now if there is no Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is is largely responsible for loss. JJ and I both felt that way. I know Carlton felt passionately about it too. I can't wait for it to come back on Showtime. But, But that idea of like Dale Cooper was basically, his job was to find out who killed Laura Palmer, and so that idea of like the show wasn't about the the uh, condition of living in Twin Peaks; it was about the resolution of this mystery. And so one of the things that was really hard for us to do on Lost, and why we kept expanding the cast, and it was trying to find stories that were engaging enough to believably understand why the characters were not asking the same questions that the audience was. And of course, it re- it reached a tipping point, um, and we were able to. Uh, uh, start to move in a in a resolution um, uh, direction once we had an end date. But um, I, I think there's a lot more to say about this, and I would be surprised if it doesn't come up. But let's bring out our next guest, um, guys. They are great. You're gonna love them. <laughs> you guys come sit back here. Please welcome Doug Petrie, Marty Noxon, and Andrew Miller. Doug and Marty, I want to talk to you guys first because I think, you know, if if Lost uh, kicked open the door for a lot of shows that came after, you guys worked on the shows that opened the door for Lost in many ways, uh, which were Buffy, Angel, and and those Joss Whedon shows. They had a huge impact, I know, on your careers. They had a huge impact on television as a whole. Now you guys have to come out of that (laughs) and start making your own stuff. Um, And Doug, I want to start with you because I feel like you've worked worked on a number of shows in the interim, but I feel like now you are on the shows where you are absolutely supposed to be. Uh, You know, you are an enormous nerd. Yes. Uh, You're writing superheroes. Yes. Uh, Tell me about, about getting to that point. Um, well, I actually, I can quote Marty Knox. I would have quoted even if she wasn't sitting next to me, which is delightful. Um, uh, Marty once said, "Getting." We, I always describe that people say, "What was Buffy like?" You know, what was it like being there? And I go, "It's it's like saying I graduated from Hogwarts." You know, it's it was great. You know, you saw these incredible people every day. We made each other laugh really hard. And kind of what these guys were saying here, what was really fun, was that every once in a while, someone would say something completely completely insane. Like, what if we could do this? And then Joss would look at us and go, what if we could do this? <laughs> and then we would put it on the air. 
you know. So that was tremendous fun. Um, but Marty said leaving Buffy was like getting thrown out of a car at 60 miles an hour because all of a sudden you're in television, you know. Yeah. And and everybody wanted the success and the and and I've been asked by very smart people, surprisingly, what was the formula for Buffy? Have you ever been asked that? No. Yeah. <laughs> They're more afraid of Marty than they are of me, uh, which is smart. Um, uh, and it's a very I'm always flabbergasted by that question. I mean, there, there is no formula. You know, we, we, we loved it to death. And it was never a job, and it was always this mission. And people would, you know, my personal favorite thing was to come in on a Sunday in this, this little office with all these nerd posters all over the place <laughs> and, and, and listen to a movie soundtrack that was deep and slow and beautiful and, and write dialogue for Faith or whatever. You know, it was, it was, and we were all like that. So when you're thrown out of that car at 60 miles per hour... What happens? How do you start to find your voice? How do you start to let that voice be known to the world? It, in, in fits and starts, you know? Um, and, and to go back to your original question as to what's happening now, and I, I'm so curious as to what your experience is, a lot of the what we came out of, the, you know, kind of Joss's zeitgeist, it, it, none of it is conscious. You know, it's none of it is, oh, I'll do this because, you know, Joss did that. Or I'll, I'll do the opposite because I want to, you know, get a different result. Or it, None of it is like that. It really is. And this is why, you know, the, the, the Marvel Universe and the Daredevil Universe and, and being able to do the story of Matt Murdock is, as you point out, is analogous. Because we loved Buffy so much. And we loved the character so much. We loved her morality so much. We loved her bravery so much. And what's really interesting to me is that people uh, uh, say, you know, it was a pioneering show in terms of feminism. I don't remember ever, ever discussing the fact that she was a woman. Ever. She was just Buffy. You know, what would she do in, in this situation or that situation? And sometimes we would argue she would do this, but she would not do that. But it was always out of great belief and passion and that extended to all of those characters so i think that what you know where i'm i'm blessed right now is that is that matt murdoch who's this you know blue collar tortured catholic homicidal lunatic with a with a, a legal bent and trying to be good and and you know we were talking about drew goddard a minute ago drew said initially um uh, uh, this is a guy who's got a real problem, and his problem is that he's he's homicidal, and he he would go out and just beat the shit out of people, but not kill them because he's Catholic. And then in the morning, he wakes up and he feels absolutely horrible, like a like an addict of some kind. And then the night comes crawling around, and he wants to do it again. And Drew said to me on the phone, he said, he's a, this is a Catholic who dresses like the devil. And uh, let's admit it, it's, it, it feels good to be bad. And I was like, I can't wait to write this shit. Um, so I think that's kind of where, where it comes from is, um, and, and where the parallels are is you're very lucky if you can either find or create or, or inherit any way you can get into the, that, that super highway, that stream of a character that you kind of feel in your bones and really, really, really care about. 
in a way that if, if I think if we weren't paid, we would still have written Buffy, you know, and it's yeah. the same. What Marty, you? you're, you're writing six shows now, some, <laughs> some very high number of shows, uh, some on the air and then a bunch of new pilots and stuff. Yeah. Tell me about, like, it, are all of these shows your voice, and was that a voice that was easy for you to find post-Buffy? Um, no. Uh, I mean, yes, uh, all of the shows that I've been working on and the ones that are coming are um, uh, are all facets of mm-hmm. of me. When I came to Buffy, I was the like I was the outlier drama girl. You know, uh, Joss had read a couple of scripts about suicide that I wrote because I like to write about ghosts and suicide. So the ghost <laughs> qualified me. Um, ghost who commits suicide? Hmm. Note to self. And um, I, so I had to like do a crash course on that kind of genre and you know Joss would hand me comic books and say you know this is important you know Uh, Peter Parker's girlfriend you know and I'd be like okay Um, but um, you know I think I've told this story before I didn't get work as a writer I I sold a script when I was brand new and then I didn't sell anything again for almost seven years Um, and in that time I feel like I went from being somebody who wrote to try to please people to being someone who wrote to try to please um, someone like me, um, which to you know means conflicted and lives with a ton of ambiguity and you know I'm and and one of the great things that's been happening you know in television of late is that the kinds of stories that I've been dying to tell there's room for them you know there's there's room for too many stories you know I, I, I now I am at the point where I feel like Netflix is my bad boyfriend I keep driving by billboards going like not another one you want too much from me Netflix um you know, in Westworld, and um, you know, uh, but I think that for every writer, um, there's a journey that that you have to go through. I think, which is about drilling down into something that um, all those stories that you're kind of afraid to tell, the parts of yourself that um, that feel wrong or bad or, or different that's really where the sweet spot is and um, and so weirdly I'm doing like a lot of murdery stuff now like I'm <laughs> I don't know what that shows but um, you know Sharp Objects which is coming up um, you know we start filming next early next year um, super murdery um, <laughs> and that's new for me you know doing um, that kind of mystery writing um, that's also something that's not obviously a TV show. Uh, you know, the book is very much a finite story. Right. Uh, there's not a whole lot of ambiguity at the end of it. Right. Um, what, are you, what are you bringing to that? And I know you have, the, the author is on the staff, right? Yeah, Gillian Flynn, who's also the author of Gone Girl and, um, and Dark Places. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, everybody has alluded to it. I, the, the best shows to me, have a reason for being. They have a, a theme or a, an idea that feels fresh or um, exciting. And, and to me, uh, Sharp Objects was about, is about um, women's violent impulses. They're not 
um, necessarily triggered by men. There's so many stories in the culture about women who've been um, abused or hurt in certain ways, but you know, we're only now beginning to acknowledge that women have all kinds of character traits that don't fit the pretty, pretty princess. And one of them is that we can be awful um, and violent and um, and hurt ourselves and each other for no reason except that you know sometimes we're bad too. Um, and I think that you know um, Gillian had had talked about this being like a western where a woman walks into her hometown and has to root out the evil, and the evil is actually living within the women in the town. And to me, that was sort of a feminist statement to say let's explore the fact that um, we do harm to ourselves and each other, and where does that come from? Um, and and generally, you know, generationally, you know, it's expressed in different ways. So to me, um, it's not going to go on forever. We think we have three seasons at most. Um, we're going to pivot from one character to another, um, but we also didn't solve all of it in the first um, season. So, um, but you know, and this is true of Dietland, which we just sold, which is you know, I mean, Donald Trump helped us sell that show. It was unbelievable. He just kept so. well because it's about um, it's about a, a, a obese woman, a fat woman, who's recruited by a feminist collective um, at the very same time that there's a, a terrorist group of women um, killing perpetrators who got off. And um, it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, to me, the urgency of that is, is obvious. You know, we're, I think there's a tension right now between men and women, um, and you're seeing it writ no, large. <laughs> we forgot to be mean to Ben. You were really nice to him. Um, uh, there's a real, I mean, the it's a premise that was at the beginning of Girlfriend's Guide, which is how long in, in our society have we had, have women had the ability to have as much financial power as men? Just not, not obviously it hasn't happened across the board, but just the fact that a woman can out-earn a man is a blip in the course of human history. And also women went into the workplace, I think, out of, because more out of corporate greed than, you know, because they were like, let's let women try. It was because, you know, um, workers are getting pushed to the limit, and now every household has to be a two, you know, many households have to, so, but no one thought we'd do good, <laughs> you know? Um, so to me, that, you know, that tension between where I think a lot of women are, where, I mean, look, I'm a feminist with a boob job. I'm very conflicted, you know? <laughs> I still want to be a pretty, pretty pony, but I also... But I also um, really want to be successful and ambitious. Um, and, you know, I feel it in my own life. So wanting to write about that in, in terms of Dietland, where the war between the sexes becomes literal. And then Donald Trump went out and just made it all far, far too real. Far too real. You know? All the subtext became text. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm so very fortunate, like everyone here, I think, to be writing. And that's what I learned to go full circle. That's what I learned working with Joss, which is that the personal is political and the personal is emotional. And whatever keeps you up at night, no matter how bizarre or, or um, feels so um, singular to you, the more I, I dive into those, those hurts and places, the more universal the message is. And, um, and I think that's what, it, what he taught me and what he taught us was to be brave, you know, to be brave. That was some good storytelling right there. <laughs>
pick that up with you, Miller, and talk about, uh, you know, you, you ran Secret Circle, and we've kind of talked about that on the podcast, um, but right now you're coming off of working on some other people's shows and being, you know, the number two guy on some other shows, but you also have five things you're developing, six <laughs> things you're developing. I'm trying to be a pretty pony. I know. <laughs> um, are you... Get a boob job. It really helps. <laughs> I'm curious, of the ones you can talk about, can you tell us what you are finding that is your story to tell in those? Um, failure. I have a lot of failure. Uh, How does uh, that relate to something you're writing? Uh, I'm doing this uh, adaptation of Tremors for Amazon with... Um, yeah, I'm excited too. Um, and and that, that's, that's about failure, but uh, the Kevin Bacon character is now 25 years older and a, a horrible loser in this town that had a brief moment of glory in the 80s or 90s and is now worse off than it was before, and he's sort of coming face-to-face with... With the the town is coming face to face failure, but it's also a Donald Trump story in that uh, it's this the notion of of, uh, of being nostalgia as a drug that is killing us and looking back on a time and uh, that the the longer you look at that time in the mirror without accepting reality, these monsters start to grow beneath the surface, and in this case, it's these worms that are literally growing beneath the surface. So, and then that's about me. That's that horror thing. That's about trauma. That's this, a similar thing where people having or trying to get over these traumas of both empower themselves and then put themselves in, in great danger because I think we are not processing trauma as healthy, as healthily right now as we could be. So I think it's causing more problems. I find myself not processing trauma as well as I ought to be and feel like I'm the star of my own horror movie sometimes psychologically. Um, I want want to put this to uh, both Andrew and Doug. I know one of the things you're working on, Andrew, is very serialized um, and, and Doug, the stuff you're working on, they, those sort of ten-part series are very highly serialized, meant yeah. to be binged. Yeah. Do you guys have any questions for Damon? No. <laughs> <laughs> I won't throw you under the bus. Let's welcome our next guest. In. <laughs> Please welcome my friend Jane Espenson and my friend and writing partner, Ben Acker. Am I the only fucking heathen who didn't, like, get raised on French and Italian? Like, did everyone? I've never seen a French New Wave film in my life. And I feel stupid. How, how are you going to date Damon if you don't start watching I this? just got to bone up before our next, uh, our next lunch. I actually, let me ask one question about that before I get to you guys. Jeff, you were also raised, you watched the, all those oh, yeah. movies at an impressionable age, but you became a comedy writer. Yeah. How did you become a comedy writer? Well, there wasn't a real call for the next Antonioni. <laughs> so, no one was looking to make, uh, you know, films about Monica Vitti walking around backwards. <laughs> don't, I don't get the reference. <laughs> All right, I want to ask, the reason I brought out Jane and Ben together... 
really. The reason I brought out Jane and Ben together um, is I want to see a show of hands on this panel. Who among you loves writing? The process, the act of writing. <laughs> really? I'm surprised. I thought it was just going to be Jane and Ben. <laughs> um, I don't think it's wrong. We, we all work very hard to get into this business because we loved writing. So why not get the payoff, which is you get to sit at your keyboard and... We are not on trial here. <laughs> what, what is it about the process? What part of the process, what is your brain doing that you enjoy? Uh, it's finding the right word. Like, I don't feel like I'm a great at structure or story or anything, but I love to write the right line, the right word for the right character, and then you get to read it to yourself, and you hear the actor say it in your head, and then you get to chuckle. <laughs> the result. The yeah, result is true. beautiful when you've written something great. Oh my god, I love that. There's no problem with that. <laughs> it's getting there that's excruciating. The difference is that Jane hears the chuckle in her head okay. before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear it right away. Yeah. <laughs> I used to she walk by oh, I used to walk by Jane's office um, after we, he, Joss would call us into the room and you'd hear She'd be running down the hall. Uh, but I used to walk by your office. I don't know if you, I ever told you this. And I'd hear... <laughs> that, and I can say I've seen basically the same thing from you, Ben. Like, we work together, but we don't sit at a keyboard and write together. What does it look like when you're writing? I'm, I'm totally Super serious. awesome. It looks great. <laughs> a lot of coffee and a lot of typing and there's a little bit of laughing at the things I mean you know we, we outline the shit out of things before we start writing and so the process of writing is letting the characters surprise me in the uh, construct that we've already made like it's and when they surprise you yeah. a, a girlish giggle like mine <laughs> <laughs> no a real manly girlish giggle like mine yes can you guys think of times the characters have surprises this is a very specific and I'm sorry I didn't warn you about this before but I'll try to fill what you think. Uh, can you think of times you've been writing a script, maybe something we've heard of or seen or heard, uh, where the characters have surprised you and taken the conversation, the scene, in a different way? Uh, I just want to write to a joke that aired tonight, because uh, an episode of Once Upon a Time that I wrote aired tonight. And <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wasn't able to tweet it, uh, live tweet it, because I was here, but... People are cool. They're tired of tweets. Um, but there was a line where they, they, there's uh, water from the river of lost souls that's going to poison the whole town. And Captain Hook learns about it uh, and says, oh, water. You know, I should have known rum would never do that. Betrayed by, betrayed by water. How does Captain Hook feel about water versus rum? And the line, it was one of those where you just, to write in a line, you write the joke, and then you read the joke, and then you get it. It's sort of like your fingers <laughs> You're nodding. Uh, we were writing a very popular children's program called Supernatural. Uh, and, uh, the assignment was that the boys find out... The, the, the handsome brothers. The handsome brothers. Yeah. Uh, you should go to the face. We never learned their names. Hank and Dean? I want to say Hank and Dean. I think you're... Um, they, the, the 
episode, psychics all living in a psychic town are being murdered, and uh, they find out about their adventure via Morning Zoo DJ, mm-hmm. who has the very obvious joke, they should have seen it coming. And what surprised me as we were writing it was the DJ then said, our, uh, seriously, it's very sad, our thoughts and prayers. <laughs> It was cut. It's not that kind of show. <laughs> Still a good, good lie. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of you who like writing, who was that? Josh? Yeah. I'm surprised. <laughs> Why? What? 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 Because I put it. Because I procrastinate. Because I complain. Yeah. <laughs> I do that for everything. Oh, I, I withhold pleasure and cause myself harm all the time. What is the? You know, one of the most painful thing is is being on a stage with Buffy writers because every time they start praising Joss Whedon, for a second my heart leaps because I think they've said Josh Friedman. <laughs> I, I went to a cocktail, I was at a cocktail party once and like this Oscar award winning screenwriter, one of my oh, no. idols, came up to me and I and we introduced each other and, and he said I'm such a fan of yours. And I was like, Oh my God! I mean, he's won Oscars. He's such a fan of mine. He goes, "Oh yeah, my kids love Buffy." And I was like, "Oh no!" And I went, "Thank you." I went, "Sir, as much as I wish I was right now, I'm Josh Friedman. I'm not Josh Whedon." And he went, "Oh, I'm sure you're good too." to our car from a restaurant in Hawaii and this woman just came running up to us and said, excuse me, excuse me, are you David Cross? (laughs) (laughs) And David was like, no, and he goes, yes, you are. (laughs) And then he's like, like, fuck you. you think you were? I was, not, I was having lunch with Guillermo del Toro at this outdoor restaurant in Toronto, and this guy walks by and he goes, oh my god, I can't believe the two of you guys are sitting together. This is amazing. He's like, Guillermo del Toro, you're my favorite director, and Ron Perlman, you're my favorite <laughs> just having the Dick Cavett show. <laughs> Mike, did you ever find someone to cut your hair who doesn't talk to you? I think about it all the time. What he's referring to is that I have a, a, a pathological fear of getting my hair cut. Uh, I actually did. There is a barbershop. I'm not going to say which one it is because I don't want it to change. Uh, and this happened. I, I the, la- the last time I did this podcast, I talked about how I, I hate getting my hair cut. I specifically, I, the actual act of it is fine. It's the small talk with the person cutting my hair I find excruciating. And uh, I talked about how the guy who cut my hair was great because he didn't talk to me when he cut my hair. And then the next time I went to see him, he was like, hey, I heard you talking about me. I was like, oh, yeah. And he was like, that's so funny. Because you know why? Because about five years. And then he started talking to me. I never went back. I ghosted him. I hardcore ghosted him. And so now I have I have found a place where the guy does not, I don't believe he speaks English. And that's great. <laughs> Wonderful. And, I, and I'm not going to say who it is. Because I don't want him to listen to this podcast. <laughs> this is why I feel Uber should pay me. 
because the driver's talking to you. Yes. Yeah, I'm with it's you. It's like I gotta make small talk all the way to the airport. It's excruciating. Yeah. I would it's really, so tough. It's like, I'm very entertaining. So it's like, I should yeah. You're saying the drivers should pay you when they yeah, pick you up. Yeah, exactly. And then All you the literally sing for your supper. Yeah. And then they <laughs> like, you're going to get some great friends, Will and Grace, Esper, Housewife story. <laughs> sure hates you because you don't get to tip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just rattles a jar with coins in it. <laughs> Listen, we have to bring out our next people because I want you all to talk to each other. Uh, who, who's left back there? Please welcome. Oh my God, the best ones: David Fury, Charles Murray, and Catherine Humphreys. Guys, are they even still here? Thank you. Please come sit down. Yeah, come up front, Catherine. I specifically want to ask you guys, how do you become a valuable player on somebody else's show? What are things that you can tell us, we who are going to be staffed on television shows? And I'll open this up, especially to the back row here, because you guys have really all been through this. I mean, all of you have. Um, but I really want to hear what are some practical things that we can do to make ourselves indispensable on a staff? Well, the, the awkward part is... Uh... I've worked with half the people in this panel. You're crediting me with being valuable is pretty much a subjective opinion <laughs> here. But I think for me, uh, what it means is um, it's sort of your on base percentage um, rather than your home run hitting. Um, I think the fact that if you could be consistent and deliver a first draft of a script that's in decent enough shape that you can probably shoot it and it would be okay. Um, I mean, I, I think our jobs are really to create less work for everyone else, especially our, our, the showrunners. They don't want to have to note you to death. They don't want to have to rewrite you. They just, you know, so when you can deliver drafts that are good, they're not always there yet, but they're good enough, I think you become a very valuable member of the team. How about you guys? Anything additional, Charles, Catherine? Um, I think you learn to listen. You know, I think um, a lot of times uh, when you go into rooms, you're so excited to prove your worth, but you've mm -hmm. proven it by getting into the room. But I think at, at that point, you know, in, in line with what David said, it's, you know, it's, it's a team game. And, and, and if you don't listen to how your teammates are getting gelling and getting together and trying to figure out how to tell the story that's greater than you and your ego that, you know, has to come out when you write, um, you, you, you have a, you, you, you have a better, uh, Ability at, at, at being a team, uh, being that voice, you know. Uh, the other thing is um, having good mentors, you know, uh, because when you see people who uh, do it well and you're constantly hearing and learning from them, you learn how to step into your 
position. I, that's something I'm always curious about, and I love hearing about the lineage of TV shows and what you learned from the people that you worked for and worked with. Starting with Catherine, but I'd like to hear from any of you, what, have, what are some of the key specific things you've learned from the people you've worked for? That's a great question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I taught him that question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think. I mean. I think a lot of, of what David and Charles were saying is is what to be on. I think a lot of it's about what does your showrunner need and want from you. And every show that you step into is going to be its own microcosm. It's going to the showrunner is going to need, want, expect different things. And um, some environments I think you're going to fit in, and some you're not. I mean, I think that's something I've learned from people I've worked with is to not. I'm not going to work on every show. I'm not going to be the right fit for every show. Um, the business is so subjective. It's so, I, I work on one show and the boss says, I hate everything you're doing. Don't do this. And then you go on another show and you do the same thing and they're like, oh my God, where have you been all my life? I was over there sucking. So I think, I mean, I've been, I've been super lucky to, to work for and with a lot of people that, that taught me. Uh, I think uh, another thing I learned was figure out what your skill set is. Um, I was lucky to work with Marty on Mad Men, and we worked with uh, Andre and Maria Jacquemitan, and I remember they were just these like story-breaking powers. And we would all be arguing over story, and they'd go off in a corner and get a piece of paper out and break the story. And I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And so that was something I started working on. So it's like, what's this special thing that you bring to a room? What's the special thing you bring to set? You know, the first day that I go on set, I always just kind of sit back for the day. What are the personalities? Who, who am I working with? Who am I working against? Who are my allies? How do I approach this person? Um, I Before I did this, I worked in a preschool for a while, and I always feel like those skills come in really handy. Um, Absolutely. Uh, what about the rest of you? Um, again, specific things from people you've worked for. I got, you know, this is going to get mushy as, <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that woman right there, uh, Marty Knoxon, is she was my first TV boss, and you couldn't ask for a better boss. You know, she uh, put up with a lot of my grump, and you know, and she educated me to what I needed to learn and she let me watch what she had to go through you know she was very very open with me you know as a as a person coming into the TV game and um, you know I afterwards I ended up apprenticing with David Milch and I gotta say <laughs> uh, any difference at all? <laughs> You know, I'll say this. David, David for me, was actually very uh, uh, nurturing. And, but having those two people coming out of the gate, you know, uh, I got to see this business in a way where I didn't have to come in and do the dance. You know, ta-da, this is how good I am. Please, please, please. You know, and I agree with Catherine. I've been on nine shows. I've only been good at three of them. <laughs> 
Let, I remember we talked about this the first time you were on the panel that you've been on shows where people expect you to be good, but you've been on shows that are, that are the actual thing you love, and maybe that's not as obvious. Yeah, well, I have, not too many people have expected me to be good. They've expected me to be quiet, <laughs> and that never goes. Well. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I do believe that, you know, if, you, if you're going to learn anything, you know, out of this business, there's so much information put before you, be it in podcasts and magazines and books and things like that. It's just learn. Just shut your fucking mouth. Open your ears. Learn. You know. Was this a... Uh, did all of you find this? I mean, this sounds like a universal truth of working in this business. Was it difficult for any of you to shut your mouth and learn? <laughs> I'd like to hear about how you did it. Uh, Jane, I've never heard this from you. I, early on, I, I spent five seasons in sitcoms before I got on Buffy. And uh, it's, you're in a room where you're, you're constant, people are constantly talking and they're shouting out jokes. You, you, you write the script as a group. And I would be very conscious of when was the last time I spoke, what was the last joke I pitched. Maybe I'll just say something during this quiet break about where I had dinner last night, so at least they remember I'm in the And I was talking without a reason to talk, and it was terrible. And it took a long time for me to sort of chill the hell out and go, okay, no one's going to notice if I'm quiet. No one's going to notice that I'm quiet. The only silence is only echoing in my ears. If I'm quiet, I'm sort of invisible, and I can sit here and learn. Um, and I kind of wish I never had the writer's um, writer's assistant experience, and I think that would have done me really well to sort of just have a couple of years of sitting in the room just listening. I was sort of thrown right in it, uh, and it took me a while to figure that out. So then, how did you start to figure out the right time to contribute? Well, I moved from comedy to drama, so we didn't have to do that. <laughs> but you're still in the room pitching. Yeah, but you're pitching story ideas and not jokes, and it's, it's a totally different process. Oh, you still pitch jokes. I might pitch the occasional joke. <laughs> I can uh, sit quietly while everyone else is working on story. I'm thinking of what's the pun that they are about to set <laughs> that they don't realize they're setting up in. Uh, Fury, I want to hear about this from you about this learning curve of knowing when to speak and knowing when to listen. Uh, and then I want to come to you, Jeff. I don't, I don't think I learned that. Uh, I, I, I like Jane. I, I started in sitcoms uh, with my wife, who was my writing partner, who's out there somewhere. Uh, I think she left. It's getting to be a long night. <laughs> and uh, so I was used to the same thing, exactly. Like, as a staff writer on comedies, you are often, at least my feeling was, uh, you were supposed to kind of sit a little bit quietly, let the more experienced writers do a lot of that, just occasionally chime in. But I just, I don't, I don't have that must thing. So I wouldn't shut up. And uh, uh, I think I just learned more by osmosis from the people I worked with, uh, rather than actually shutting up and listening, which I probably would have benefited from. Um, I just sort of gleaned things from people like Marty and Jane, you know, and Damon and Carlton and, and I mean I just kind of I mean but I but I did it kind of unknowingly as I'm just as we're just all working in this creative structure and we just, it just becomes Jane, uh, do, you, do you remember that at one point I we made a stop sign for you? <laughs> the rest of us don't remember Marty. <laughs> No, that sounds like it's a great story, though. It's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, we just had really? a, we had to hold something up. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Did I run through the stop sign? <laughs> no, you just 
very, very, very committed to your ideas. <laughs> well, I was right, and everyone else was wrong. <laughs> if only they had realized. Why is she holding that sign up? So anyway. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, I want to hear about you in a comedy room. It's a, it is, as Jane was saying, a different animal. And Mike, I wonder if you've had this experience too. You know, the finding the rhythms of a comedy room. Well, I, I had a. I mean, I've had a wonderful rainbow of experiences with some of the best comedy showrunners out there. I mean, I, I was very fortunate that my first job, Dream One, was Marta Kaufman and David Crane, uh, who later went on to create Friends and took me with them to that show. Marta and David were brand new when they were starting out, and so they didn't understand how noisy and disruptive I was. <laughs> and how inappropriate and tenacious I was, and they put up with it, um, which I think a lot of more seasoned showrunners wouldn't have done. Uh, but I learned from them, I mean, I learned so much from the two of them just about character and storytelling. Marta has an enormous, just heard her sense of character and emotion uh, was extraordinary, and then David's sense of story structure, and, and the, they were an incredible team in terms of helping you work the left and right side of the brain. So they were really extraordinary. And David, particularly when running the room, made sure that everyone in the room felt respected, honored, and listened to, which is really something. Um, you know, one of my first jobs was a freelance episode of a show nobody remembers called The Marshall Chronicles, which uh, Richard Rosenstock created. He later went on to create Flying Blind, which is the show that discovered Taya Leone. And uh, he gave me one of my first freelance episodes. And uh, I later hired him on as a consultant on the show Partners, which was the show I did right after Friends. 1995 edition. Oh, <laughs> you got to let it go. I know. It's been, I know, it's tough. Nobody remembers either of the shows now. Um, but I had Richie as a consultant. There was something he did in the room that I found really extraordinary, and this is going to sound really simple, but he would go, I like that. He was really affirmative about other writers' contributions. And I found that really infectious and really validating. Just to have a guy in the room who isn't just about, I want to give you my best idea, but I also want to make sure that that voice across the room gets heard. And he was really good as a former showrunner himself, right, as making sure that, like, you know, he would shine the light on everybody in the room. And I, and I learned a lot from that. Uh, the other thing that he said, and you guys kind of alluded to this, is he, he said to me as a staff writer, your number one job is to take pressure off the showrunner. Uh, and as I got to be a showrunner, I came to understand the blinding, blinding pressure that is always on you and that your job is to be additive and affirmative. Um, that isn't to say you can't mix it up with other writers every once in a while, but you sh if you find you're saying no too much and you're being too much of a drag on the process or you're the only one in the room talking, you're doing it wrong. Um, so, you know, I was really fortunate. I learned from Mark Cherry. I learned from Jason Kadams. These were like extraordinary visionary uh, uh, writers who also had an incredible sense of how to run a room. So I was very, very lucky in that regard. And Mike, before we move on, I'm curious to hear about your early years. How were you in the room? Uh, I don't think my problem was ever that I talked too much because I, when I started on The Office, Greg Daniels was my mentor. And when I started there, I didn't know how to write uh, sitcoms and I knew that I didn't know how to write and I took the job specifically because I felt like he was a person who could teach me and so I was very um, I was like a kid in school like I, I took notes about the story we were breaking but I also took simultaneous notes about what he was doing and how he was doing it and um, he had this thing where uh, he told me fairly early on that he he believed that if people were talking 
just excessively in, in a writer's room, it was often because that person felt sort of insecure about his or her position on the show. And he had this amazing tool that he would employ at those moments, which is that he would uh, very specifically compliment something that that writer had done. It could, it could have been something f six weeks ago. He would say, like, <laughs> I saw that joke. Remember that joke you wrote in that episode? I just saw that kind of joke is so funny. And the person, you know, like, I, I, I and then I, he, so he told me he did this, and I watched him do it in the room uh, to someone. And he, I, the immediate thought I had was, you know that how you feed I think it's medicine to like horses or dogs where you like, you put it in and it's like, it like calms the animal down. That's, that was literally the immediate effect that that, pro that they had on like anxious writers. It was like, he was just like, shh. And the, and the writer, the j like jittery writer would just sort of like, mm. He, he was so smart with all of that stuff, with all of the like management stuff, which is, it, it seems like it's an ancillary part of your job, but it's kind of your only job. And I, I mean, it's impossible to overstate, at least for me, and I, I think I can speak for the other people who were on that staff, especially in the early years, how deeply meaningful it was to work for him because he just was so good at that stuff. And... It's a large, I think it's a big part of the reason that the show like worked and took off is because he just was like a, he was just like a magician in that, in the, in the world of like keeping a room together and cohesive. That's amazing. All right. Uh, I want to introduce our last two guests. Uh, they are both my co-hosts in other endeavors and we're going to talk about that for a minute. Uh, you already met Heath Corson and Andrew Wright. Thank you guys for sitting backstage for so long. <laughs> That's our show, everybody. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, Andrew, we were designated survivors. I appreciate it. Uh, Andrew, let's talk for a moment. Let's plug Dead Pilot Society. <laughs> uh, tell the people, are you guys familiar with Dead Pilot Society, which is a podcast? Thank you, Jim. Yeah, thank you for coming to this uh, third episode celebration of Dead Pilot Society. <laughs> it was September 2016 was the first episode. It seems like it's pretty amazing. Uh, Dead Pilot Society is a podcast that Ben and I do where we take comedy pilots that were sold to networks but never shot, and we cast them with amazing, hilarious actors uh, and record those and... Um, do interviews with the creators, and the podcast is on the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there's only, I think our fourth episode will be posting this week. Yeah, look for it. They've all been great, too, which is pretty yeah. amazing. Uh, and three of them were yours, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's just scratching the surface. I have. <laughs> So but they were many. all great pilots, and I think that sort of, you know, it speaks to what gets left behind, which is why it's such an interesting endeavor. Yeah, it's been great. You know, there, there was just a story in Los Angeles Magazine, a really nice story about it, and, and the writer said when he was pitching the story to his editor, he said, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's a hilarious idea. So people come and they mock these things because <laughs> they're so terrible, and they come to laugh about how bad they are. And that was really what he thought it was, and it was just this sort of lack of understanding of how the business 
works, and sort of that he thought like, oh, only the, the really good the good stuff gets on, and everything that doesn't get made, you must be terrible. And that, as everyone up here you know knows, is is just not the case. And, and it was really you know it, it did start because I, I just had some pilots that I really loved, and I just I never even got to hear them read out loud. And then I thought, well, I know actors, why don't I do this? And it just started at this very small thing uh, and calling some friends and knowing but it's been so um, it, it's been so rewarding to, to see these writers get to hear these scripts that they never want they work so hard and they never got to hear read out loud and how sort of cathartic that is and um, well that was the thing I kind of wanted to ask you and Heath you can answer this too as you know as we talked about, you've sold pilots, uh, but you also write comic books and you've written animation. Um, but Andrew, starting with you, you're a successful writer. You've written on a bunch of shows. You've created shows. What are you getting out of doing a stage show and podcast? <laughs> I mean, it's, you're not getting elsewhere. It, it, it really, it's just for it's just fun, and it's you know for me just the writing part. You know, often you know you, I, I'll have years with you know seasons where it's just like I just write, I sell some pilots, I write them, and then that's it. I don't get to make, I don't get to do the producing part of it. I don't get to cast. I don't get so for us to put on to cast these shows and figure out who should play what and go through that, and people say no, and who do we go to next, and and to put on a show is you know is uh, is fun, and I and I also think if you know over years of of doing this. I think my jealousy and competitiveness have diminished a bit, where I don't see it as such a zero-sum game where I just am bitter about anyone else getting a show on. Or you know, I see it as just like we're all doing this thing, and uh, I, I'm just—it's just nice to, to to be able to sort of perform this service for other writers and to see them here and be—it's it, a nice thing, and that just sort of feels good, uh, and it's nice that there isn't a big profit motive, and there isn't, you know, that, that people can hear these, and they're not worried. An actual table read of when you're really doing it is so horrible. It's so, it's the most tense, <laughs> horrible day of your life, because you just are so worried that an actor's just, you know, going to blow it, or, or that you're going to get some note that's going to make you ruin the show. You, you, you really are so worried about that note that's going to come, and what you're going to have to do to the show after the table read. So for, to, to be able to just have a table read where you don't have any of that stress uh, is is just a great thing because the the real ones aren't fun and this is just fun. For me, we do the uh, comics panel, and I'm a huge comic book nerd. I have been for a long, long time. Uh, It started as this great way to get to meet people that I grew up loving. You know, that we were sitting across the table from Len Wein and being able to go like... Hey, what was it like when you created Swamp Thing or any of the other 3,000 characters that you made, including Stegron, uh, um, Deep Cut. That was a deep cut. You know. uh, we did do a whole episode about it. We did a whole episode about Stegron. And, and it started as that, and it became this great thing to be able to call up Jam DeMattis and be like, I'm the biggest nerd for Justice League International. We have to talk about it. And um, 
talk about these things that really influenced me as a storyteller. And then it sort of evolved into realizing it was okay that I did it the way I did it, and I wasn't alone in my technique, because there was a really long time that I was like, oh no, I'm crazy. The way I write is insane, because I have to do it at night, and I can only really write from like 10 to 4 in the morning, and it's terrible, and I felt a lot of shame about it. And then we were sitting across from Brian Lee O'Malley, who did uh, Scott Pilgrim, and he's like, oh, that's how I do it. I don't know any other way to do it. And I was like, oh, wait, I'm not insane. It's okay to do it this way. And then, yeah. So that's been a really great thing. Although I will say, it's not easy all the time. Sometimes you meet people that you're really excited to meet, and they don't end up being awesome at all. No, they... (laughs) Whoa! Not to name any names, you guys. Wow. Uh, That's terrible. It was rough. So, sorry, Charles. Oh, no. Sorry. It was rough. <laughs> fucked up my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. You still have the comics. You still have the comics. Yeah. Um, let me ask Andrew and Heath before we move on. Uh, do you guys like writing? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I think... I think as I said, I like having written. Um, I don't like writing, but I, but I do. I mean, except for very those rare moments people talk about where a character does just say something. You didn't have anything to do. You just you just took down, and, and it it doesn't happen that when that that is so great, and those moments make it worthwhile. And sitting, you know, writing that horrible first draft and looking at it the next day and going like, actually, you know what? There's a lot of decent stuff here. Like that feels good, but it's. Um, I mean, if anything, I've learned listening to the, the, the nice thing about listening to your podcast is it's like everyone goes through, everyone yeah. goes through the same That's, self-loathing. Yes. Everyone does. Yeah, it's not, terrible. Not, I'm terrible. <laughs> not Ben and Jane. <laughs> not Jane. I just have to sit and make myself type and eventually it becomes writing at some point. And I don't know, usually around 1245. <laughs> uh, all right, we do need to wrap up. Uh, before I ask you our final question, does anyone have any questions for Carlton and Damon. <laughs> I got the flashback on 2008. Oh my god, when I was on panel time, it was literally like being, it was like being a roadie for the Beatles. It was like, it was me and Josh Schwartz and Brian Fuller and the two of them, and it was the Now high- it's like being a roadie for Wings. Yeah. <laughs> I want to uh, ask you guys, uh, keep it to one or two, what are you watching these days? I'm going to go in a crazy order so that I end with Jeff. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to start here with Josh. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to go around. Oh, uh, tell us what you're watching. What are you into? What are you enjoying? What's inspiring you these days on television? Uh, I love Fleabag. Yeah. If you clap after everyone, we're never getting out. Never getting out. I love Fleabag, Catastrophe. I mean, most of the those half hours and um, The Voice. Ooh. Wait a minute. I, I, hidden person with hang, hidden singing power revealed is my favorite narrative trope of all time. And that's the pilot we can't talk about. That's what you're working on now. Mike. I'm really into Atlanta right now. I really love how weird it is, um, and uh, I have to say, uh, the thing I'm most excited for is Leftovers Season 3. Counting down the minutes. Carlton? 
Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by Westworld. I'm, you know, enjoying watching that and uh, trying to sort that out in my brain. Uh, and uh, surprisingly, uh, I like divorce. Why is that surprising? surprising? Well, because the reviews were not kind Uh, about the show. I was like, they were, and and I think the show's good. Huh? Damon? I I feel like I could name all all the shows that everybody up here is. I want to say, in fact, let me pause. We recuse all uh, all shows because I spoke to those guys backstage about. How many of them that? Uh, um, uh... Let me pause for one second. We, I did a panel with Damon at ATX Television Fest, which if you guys don't know about, go to atxfestival.com. It's great. You'll love it. You'll love TV. But Damon gave this great speech at the end of our panel, which was like the last panel of the event, that turned into this... this enthusiastic, rousing speech about how much he loves television and how it's important to all of us. And it was actually very moving. And we, we have it all recorded, so it's on that episode. But you guys should listen to it, because this is a guy who comes by his love of television very honestly. So what are you watching right now? Um, it, it's wildly depressing because I feel like I'm behind on so many shows. And as you you know, kind of mentioned Fleabag, and Mike mentioned Atlanta Backstage, and I was like, oh, I've only seen the first two episodes. And there are shows that I watch with my wife, and we have to watch together. And there are shows that I'm you know that I can watch on my own that she's no longer interested in, etc. But uh, right now we're doing Transparent season three, which is incredible and amazing. And and uh, and I'm uh, binging Halt and Catch Fire from the beginning, and it's awesome. Like let, let me just say, I think one of the uh, and, and and then get everybody. But one of the hard, really hard things to do right now is for a show to basically arrive fully formed, like right out of the gate. And because there's so you know because we're in this era of uh, of peak TV, our, our tolerance for like how much time we'll give a show um, is basically uh, uh, zero time. It's got like it's got to be it's got to be amazing out of the gate. So these uh, shows that are um, uh, growers, not showers. <laughs> Uh, you know, but if you let them grow. Uh, but anyway, Halt and Catch Fire was a show. I watched the pilot, and I was sort of like, oh, I, I kind of like the actors on this show, but it didn't immediately grab me. And then uh, all these people that I uh, love and respect were like, you have got to um, go and revisit that show, and I'm so glad that I did. It's really worth your time. So. Catherine. Um, I, we were talking backstage that I actually I watch a ton of comedy more than drama because I it, uh, it feels like drama sometimes can feel like work you know it's you're embroiled in it you know the players you know where it's going so I've been loving the Good Place um, I've been I love Blackish uh, that I think that's that's a really cool show um, and uh, I'm a Walking Dead fan so I've been watching like this but I'm still watching. <laughs> And then the other thing is This Is Us. I've really been loving that because I got into this business wanting to write character drama on network television. And um, it makes for some lonely days. Thanks, because So yeah, so it's been. I think seeing this is us and seeing the response, and um, you know, I, I think it's not a perfect show yet. It's it's still finding its way, but it's it's nice to know that there can still be character drama on network television. Can I just say that I knew there was a twist, and for a minute, I hoped it was Ghost Doctor. I really thought. <laughs> I hope Rainy was a ghost. I thought, I thought that show. Like, it's a ghost. Well, because he was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to our This Is Us podcast. It starts next week. <laughs> Uh, David Fury. Uh, I, I, I've been 
I've really been obsessively watching this terrifying horror show uh, called the 2016 election. <laughs> and to get away from it, I, I've been binge-watching with my wife, uh, Parenthood, the entire series, which I didn't get to see, and love, and I've now realized all the mistakes I've made when raising my children. <laughs> It's so great, though, isn't it? It's fantastic. And my kids are great, too. <laughs> I could have done better. Uh, I'm loving The Good Place. Uh, big fan. Uh, Speechless, I really like. I think that's a really cool show. Um, my wife and I fall asleep watching a show, and right now we're going all the way through 30 Rock again. This is our second time this year. <laughs> but she's paying me back because I did West Wing, and so she's like, we get to do 30 Rock again, which is fair. That's a, that's a, tra that's a real trade-off, if you didn't know. Andrew Reich. Uh, it's a pretty steady diet of Antonioni and Eric's. <laughs> Can't wait to see what you come up with next. Uh, I mean, the last thing I just absolutely loved was season two of Fargo, um, which I thought was. Um, uh, Mr. Robot, uh, the Americans. Um, I'm liking better things. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pamela Adlon. <laughs> Charles. Um, when I'm working, I don't watch a lot of TV. I watch NBA and I watch movies. But when I'm off, I like binge. Do you, when you're working and watching movies, do you watch the same movies or do you watch new I watch stuff? Every, I watch stuff that that is in just in the ether. Anything that, anything that you've loved? Huh? Anything that you've loved that you want to recommend? Uh, there's a French movie called... <laughs> Stop it. Uh, it's called Police. And it's, uh, it's really harrowing. It's about... That's uh, French for police. <laughs> It's about uh, uh, the uh, ch children's version of the SVU unit. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Mike Scherr just got up and left. <laughs> ben Acker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's little kids solving sex crimes. Stop it. Put it back in your pants. Good place is great. Atlanta is great. Uh, Survivor this season is really good. <laughs> uh, I'm only feel like I'm watching two things consistently right now: The Good Place and Project Runway. Miller, uh, I'll just add that you know these shows, all the good ones, and uh, Happy Valley. Oh. <laughs> I, I didn't know the love. It's good. Tell before you like it can't say Happy Valley. I know, but there's oh. nothing. They're just all gone. <laughs> <laughs> Americans even. Do you like Stranger Things? Yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore show? <laughs> Dick Van Dyke? <laughs> Doug Petrie. 400 Blows, the series. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate Black Mirror. Uh, 
just because uh, you know pure bulls. And um, uh, uh, what's great about the Netflix model is you can go back a couple of years. And I was going to actually tell Mike backstage. I finally uh, started from the beginning, uh, Parks and Rec. And this week I watched uh, in a week I watched the first two seasons in a shot, and I've fallen in love with it uh, and the characters. So that's that's fun, Marty. Uh, I usually come home and lie in the dark. <laughs> what are you in a French movie? We. <laughs> oui. uh, no, I uh, I do watch a lot of TV. Everything um, that these guys mentioned, but actually, I'm super into listening to podcasts and audiobooks. So I highly recommend Murdery, this uh, podcast called The Dark Place. Um, if you like cereal. Uh, and uh, we also watch a lot of the Great British Baking Show. We found out that previous seasons are on YouTube, so yes. you can go back. Yes. Um, that's like a Valium, that show. I don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, it's funny. Mike said something about, um, you know, the intention of his show. And one of the things I love about the Great British, it's like it's like reality. <laughs> I've worked on a show about reality. And, um, uh, uh in this reality, they're nice to each other. <laughs> I like it's that. It's the gentlest competition. Well, that's one of the things I loved about Parks and Rec, which we watch on a loop, which was, you know, it's very hard to make a show about people trying to be good. Yeah. Um, Friday Night Lights and Parks and Rec are two of my favorite examples of really entertaining shows about people who are basically decent and trying to be. And that's a hard thing to pull off. And it's a good challenge for the uh, yeah. writers yeah. working on their new material out here. Yeah. Jeff Greenstein, take us home. Wow. Okay, I loved Stranger Things. Um, really enjoyed that show. Uh, my wife and son and I, before my son left for college two months ago, utterly devastating me. <laughs> Watched the entire run of The West Wing end to end. Amazing. Um, I loved, uh, I watched the whole run of Silicon Valley. I caught up on that. God, that show was good. Um, I recently watched Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which is amazing if you haven't seen that movie. And I love Antonioni so much that my Twitter handle, Blue439, is the first line of Antonioni's film, Blow Up. for being here. Thank you all for coming out on a Sunday night. Give a round of applause to everyone here at Largo at the Coronet, our favorite place. Have a good night, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 